the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who, who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so he teaches humility here. And by the way, somebody has said this. This is not original. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Okay? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. How would you define humility? In today's message from Pastor Gary, he shares with you that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is simply thinking of yourself less. Jesus teaches to put others before yourself and make them a priority. Not that you would neglect your own needs and help, but that you wouldn't be so consumed with your own needs and ambitions. Pastor Gary encourages you to practice humility. Try to find ways to serve and extend compassion towards others. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 13 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Uh, We're going to be looking at John 13 and Lord willing, a little bit of chapter 14 tonight as well. Uh, You might want to make a note here at John 13 that between John 13 to 19, it covers about 24 to 36 hours. So the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John covers about three and a half years. Uh, The last uh, chapters, 13 through 19, there's a couple more chapters after that, but the intensity leading up to and including the crucifixion of Jesus, now things are rapidly moving here uh, as as we come to the cross, and and then it and then it slows down here at chapter 13, covering a, a period of about 24 to 36 hours between chapters 13 and 19. And this is the scene here where Jesus is with his disciples uh, in the upper room. This is considered here, chapter 13 to 17 is known as the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse. Now the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record what is commonly called the Mount Olivet Discourse. Because Jesus will teach on the Mount of Olives, and he will also teach here in the upper room. But what John focuses on more is not so much Jesus as Savior, though he is. What John focuses on more is Jesus as servant. As servant. Because John does not even discuss the Passover meal. You know, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
they refer to that whole scene of the Passover and the breaking of the bread and, you know, that part of the Passover, which we continue to do uh, here as we did this evening. But John doesn't, it doesn't focus on the Passover meal. He doesn't focus on communion and the breaking of the bread and the taking of the cup. His focus here is on another aspect of Jesus, and that is Jesus as servant. And Jesus expresses himself and demonstrates his servanthood here by washing his disciples' feet. Now, in, in most cultures, that's unusual. But in this culture, this is not that unusual. At a mealtime, you would have your feet washed. And if you didn't do it, certainly if you were invited to a dinner, the servant of the house would wash your feet. So I want you to keep that in mind because as we see here, Jesus is going to wash his disciples' feet. His disciples are shocked by this. Because this is not something that just anybody would typically do at a dinner. This is something that the lowest of the servants in the household would do. And Jesus is going to do what he's always done. I mean, the whole incarnation, when God comes to earth and takes on flesh to be as we are, to die for us. I mean, you talk about a servant's heart. I mean, Jesus condescends to our level. And as Philippians talks about, Paul said in Philippians, as being very nature, God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God because Jesus is God. But nevertheless, he humbled himself, taking on the very nature of a servant and became like us to die for us. So here he is, which is consistent with his servant nature. He's going to demonstrate servanthood here by washing his disciples' feet. And, you know, bear in mind, this, this is, you know, this is first century. This is hot, arid Israel. And your feet get dusty and dirty because you're either walking around barefoot or in sandals. And you come to dinner, and just how we hopefully, hopefully you wash your hands before you have dinner. I'm not, I'm not a germaphobe, but, but I am. In this culture, you're washing hands and feet because you're picking up all the dust of everywhere that you're going. And here, and here Jesus is now. He's going to wash his disciples' feet. And verse 1 says that it was just before Passover, the Passover feast And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Notice that the time had come. Remember in previous chapters here in John's Gospel, it talks about how Jesus was on this divine timetable. For example, back in John chapter 7, verse 6, it talks about how he wouldn't go up to a previous Passover because he says, the time for me has not yet come. The right time has not yet come. And then he says to his, his brothers, he says, for you, any time is right. But for me, the right time has not yet come. And Jesus was always operating by a divine timetable. Well, now here in verse 1, it, it tells us that the right time has now come. Jesus is about ready to die for the sins of the world. He's about ready to leave this world because he's going to die. And then 40 days later, he's going to ascend back into heaven from, from which he came. He's going to leave this world and go to the Father. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It says in verse 2 that the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Now notice, Satan had prompted Judas, so he has tempted Judas. He has already persuaded Judas to betray Jesus, and so Judas has already you know, got this thing going on with the religious leaders, but it's not until a little bit later here in verse 27, we'll see in a moment, that Satan actually enters Judas. Judas actually becomes possessed by Satan. 
and but for the moment here, the devil or Satan had, had simply prompted, tempted Judas to betray Jesus. And verse 3 says that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? By the way, I'm having to really focus on saying wash, because I, I get told all the time, I say wash, wash, you know, that's just, because, you know, my heritage, we're from West Virginia, my family is, and so there's a, little, there's a little WV in me there, you know, wash. Well, he came to wash the disciples' feet. Now, Simon Peter, I mean, he's wide-eyed. All the disciples would be like, you, you've come to, to wash my feet? No, 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 no. Because he, Simon Peter feels here, this is, this is beneath you, Jesus. You shouldn't be doing this. And I want you to notice that humility goes in two directions. Humility is not just how you serve someone. Humility is also how you allow others to serve you. Because sometimes you don't want someone to serve you because it's an issue of pride in your own heart. And you, and you just, no, I'm fine. No, I don't need that. No, I'm fine. Now, Peter here is wrestling with the idea that Jesus is going to wash his feet. And so he stops and he goes, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. You know, this is so, this is Peter style, right? Because he's always the first one, you know, to say something and then later realize after he said something, he probably shouldn't have said that, but now it's too late. The words have floated out in the air and he can't pull it back. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. But, but here's the thing. As soon as he realizes, Jesus says, if I, if you don't let me do this, you can have no part in me. Then Peter's like, then give me a bath. Give me a bath, Lord. Give me a bath. He's, like, he's, he's always in the extremes. He's either all in or not in at all. He's like, no, you'll never do this. Okay, well then, yes, just give me a bath completely. And so, and so Jesus answered in verse 10, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Now, for a moment here, just pause because he's going to clarify that. But in general, what he's saying is, this is not about giving you a bath. You don't, you don't really need a bath because it's not, it's not I'm trying to clean you up. What is he trying to express? He's trying to express the larger idea here of I'm trying to serve you. I'm stooping down because I want to do something of a servant, humble heart. But then he clarifies what he said there about not every one of you is clean because verse 11, he says, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So he's speaking about heart issues here. It's not that Judas was physically dirtier, picked up more dust than the other disciples. There's a heart issue here. And Jesus knows the ones who are with him and the one who is not. And his demonstration of servanthood here is not a matter of giving them a physical bath. It's a matter of showing humility in action. And it says in verse 12 that when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example 
that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who, who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And so he teaches humility here. And by, and by the way, somebody has said this, this is not original, but humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Okay? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Now, by the way, some denominations look at this passage and have made foot washing as a regular part of a sacrament of their worship services. Uh, Church of the Brethren, certain uh, groups within the Baptists, uh, Anabaptists, uh, Primitive Baptists, I don't, I don't think that there, there's anything wrong if, if people want to include that as a regular part of their worship service. How many of you have ever been in some, in some setting a part of a foot washing ceremony? Let me see your hands. Okay. And, and I have too. But here's the reason why, by and large, most denominations don't see it as a sacrament of the church, and including ourselves. It might be, you know, something if, you know, if people, if people practice this in different ways, maybe you have a koinonia group and, and you genu- genuinely want to have a foot washing service in, in, in your group. Uh, make sure everybody's cool with it because some people don't really like their feet to be exposed, you know. Frankly, I'm glad it's, I'm going to give you the answer in a moment, but frankly, I'm glad this is not a sacrament of the church because, you know, I, feet are nasty. I mean, some people have a foot fetish. I have like a foot aversion and I'm just talking about my own. I don't even like my own feet, let alone your feet. Right. So but, you know, but seriously, if this is something that in the right setting people want to practice, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I mean, Jesus did it. But here's why it's not a sacrament or an ordinance of the church today, like water baptism and communion. Those are really the only two ordinances that that Jesus established in the New Testament church, water baptism and communion or the Lord's Supper. And the reason why this doesn't seem here to be a sacrament or an ordinance of the New Testament church is because outside of this example, you never see the early church practice it anywhere else in the New Testament. So there's not a pattern to it. You do see water baptism and you do see the Lord's Supper as a pattern in the New Testament uh, among the New Testament church, but not foot washing. So if you want to practice it as a genuine expression of humility, that's one thing. It is not considered an ordinance uh, of the church uh, with respect to s- certain denominations who, who think that it is. Uh, we, we don't see it that way because it's not a pattern of the New Testament church. But Jesus does this to, to demonstrate humility. And the, the main takeaway from it is we should be humble, servant-hearted people towards one another. Humble, servant-hearted people towards one another. Now, some of you seem to have it as a gift. There is a spiritual gift listed in the Bible, the gift of serving. Some of you just have that servant heart, and you just love to serve and love to help, and, and you do it well. Others, we have to work harder at it. We have to be more intentional at it. So, so for some of you, it comes very easy. You know, when we were at youth camp, Terry and I were at youth camp this past week, and you know, I saw a lot of servant-hearted people. Especially you kitchen crew and, and, uh, and the counselors just wanting to serve, wanting to help and doing it with joy. You can usually tell who has a gift of serving and who doesn't by their face. You know what I'm saying? You, you can tell the difference too. When somebody serves you, would you like a cup of iced tea? Oh, here's a cup of iced tea here. Uh, versus, here you go. Thanks. I, I really feel blessed. 
So we're to be servant-hearted and we're to be humble towards one another. Verse 18, Jesus says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He quotes from Psalm 41, 9. David, David mentioned that very thing. He talked about the friend who would betray him, probably a reference to Ahithophel in David's uh, background. But Psalm 41, 9, Jesus quotes here, he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. If you've ever been betrayed by a friend, as real and damaging as that can be, it doesn't compare to the betrayal that Jesus experienced. But he can empathize with betrayal, because he he is betrayed in a supreme way here by Judas. And so here he is at the dinner table here, and what Jesus says and does indicates to us that Judas is sitting seated right next to him at the Passover meal. Because he's about to share bread from the, from the same bowl with him. And so verse 19, I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now, who is that? That's John, the guy writing the story here. By the way, the one whom Jesus loved, who was reclining next to him, he shall go unnamed, but everyone knows who he is, right? Yeah, he's writing about himself. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. So it tells us in the story that Judas was on one side and John was on the other, leaning on him. And Simon Peter, verse 24, motioned to this disciple, motioned to John, and asked and said, ask him which one he means. Psst, John, ask him, who's the one who's going to betray him? And so, verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, the one that shall go unnamed, asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon, and here it is, verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Satan possesses him. You know, we talk about possession Uh, don't think that Satan possesses everybody, okay? Satan is not omnipresent. Satan can possess, uh, but usually when we talk about demon possession, we're talking about demons and not specifically Satan himself. However, in this case, Satan himself possesses Judas. And there's probably an inference when you look at 2 Thessalonians 2 about the Antichrist, when it talks about he comes, and Revelation 13 talks about the Antichrist coming in the power and, and, uh, and authority of the dragon, the dragon being Satan, that probably the only two people that you see possessed possessed by Satan in the Bible are Judas and the Antichrist. And so here he is, possessed by Satan. Now, Jesus then says, what you're about to do, do quickly. Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. And since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. 
Now, you can make a little footnote there to your Bible that it's at this point that the other Gospels say that communion took place right at this point. Judas was not there for the Lord's Supper, the, what we call communion, part of Passover. He exits right here. So he's not there for the, for the communion part of Passover. And it says in verse 31 that when he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children. Notice that, a very affectionate term there. In the Greek it is tekona, uh, technon. Sorry, technon. It's the only time that Jesus uses this tender term here, uh, referring to his disciples. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Notice that. Why is this a new command? Why does he say a new command I give you? Shouldn't they have been loving each other up to this point? Why is this something new? Because the old command is Leviticus 19.18. And Leviticus 19.18 says that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus comes along and he says, your new command I give you, love one another. How? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's a higher love. Because if, if, if all I have to do is love my neighbor as I love myself, if I get up on the wrong side of the bed one morning, I get to hate your guts. If the standard is self-love, I only have to love you as much as I love myself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If self-love is the highest standard, then love is very limited. But if God's love, if the love of Jesus Christ towards us is the standard now, it's ratcheted up to a whole nother level. Because now, as God has loved me, Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now that means, how have I been loved by Jesus? Unconditionally, sacrificially, eternally. So we must love others as we are loved. Now, you know, today the whole love thing has been skewed, unfortunately, because now love somehow has been defined as tolerating immorality, that if you, you know, just tolerate, and that's a real definition, that's not a definition of love. And that's for a whole other Bible study, maybe I'll touch on a little bit of that this, this Sunday, but, but look, love as God has loved us, love as Jesus Christ gave his life for us, that is, that's steep. That is steep. Will we ever really effectively love others as unconditionally, sacrificially, and eternally as Jesus Christ loves us? No, humanly speaking, no. But with the help of Jesus and with that constant awareness, we must love others as he has loved us because Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When the church is bickering, backbiting, arguing, dividing, gossiping, and slandering each other, no wonder the world doesn't want to be like us. No wonder. They look, they look at us and they go, well, that's what we do at our office. That's what we do in our families. That's, that's, that's the way that we are as, 
in every other respect. So why do we need to be like you? You guys are all arguing and backbiting and slandering each other, so not very loving. And the world watches this. And Jesus says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Gospel of John is an interesting take on the life of Jesus. He was absolutely a man who experienced things as a human. But he's also God. And so because of that, he's able to do things that are unthinkable to the average human. But it's clear to see through this book that Jesus is anything but average. He's the Son of God. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus and what he's done for you? Perhaps you'd like some prayer support in what you're learning or growing in. If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? We'd like to invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. You can find out service times and other information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and even download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and hearing some things from the book of John that may be life-altering for you. We look forward to you joining us again for our next edition here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know